Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire, and this is episode 12 of the War of Independence series, Belfast, Derry and the War in the North. This episode looks at the War of Independence across the north of Ireland, but in particular the cities of Belfast and Derry. Now the story of the war in this region is very different to other parts of Ireland, not least because the IRA and Sinn Féin were not the dominant force they were elsewhere. We will meet other powerful groups such as the Orange Order, the Apprentice Boys and the Ancient Order of Hibernians. Overall, this is a little known story. Despite the fact that Belfast would become the most violent place in Ireland during the conflict, the war in the north has traditionally been overlooked. Indeed, since the 26 counties that formed the Republic of Ireland gained independence, there has almost been a contrived amnesia about the north of Ireland and its history. This is particularly the case with the War of Independence. So to try and explain this fascinating and at times unsettling history, the episode begins by looking at the background and the volatile political landscape shaped by sectarianism between Protestant and Catholic communities. Then, in the second half of the podcast, we look at how the war unfolded up to the late summer of 1920. Now, just before we begin, to keep you up to date, in the last episode I mentioned my book Life in Medieval Ireland was back on sale at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. I had ordered 20 copies but they were actually sold out in a few days so I have ordered more. I can't guarantee exactly how many I'll have so if you want to get your hands on a copy now is the time to order. As I said in the last episode there are copies of the first edition flying around the internet and the sellers are charging exorbitant prices so please don't buy those versions. Come to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop, buy it there and you'll get a signed copy, not to mention the fact that you'll be supporting the show as well. That address is irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. As usual, additional research on the show was by the archivist and historian Sam McGrath. Sound was by Jason Looney. Additional narrations are by Aidan Crow and Therese Murray. 
and the artwork for the series is by Keith Hines. If a visitor, unfamiliar with the cities of Derry and Belfast, and indeed the wider north of Ireland, visited the region in the early 20th century, it would have seemed the people were obsessed with history. Every year some of the largest events that took place across the north commemorated a war that had taken place in Ireland between 1688 and 1691. On July 12th, branches of an organisation called the Orange Order celebrated the victory of King William of Orange over his rival, King James II, at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. Meanwhile, in the city of Derry, similar celebrations took place each August, which focused on a local chapter in that same war. These were organised by the so-called Apprentice Boys, named after the apprentices of the city who had played a significant role in defending Derry during a bitter siege in 1689. In the early 20th century, the seeming fascination with the past was more popular than ever. In fact, the Orange Order Parade that took place in July 1919, the first since the end of World War I, was according to some the largest on record. However, the size of this crowd revealed the strange truth behind the interest in what were known as the Williamite Wars. Commemorating these conflicts from the 17th century had little to do with history. Indeed, they were much more about the present and even the future than the past. The choice to celebrate William of Orange's victory in 1690 was deliberate and considered. That war symbolised the dominance of Protestant settlers over Catholics in Ireland. For Catholics, it symbolised the beginning of over a century of discrimination that cast a long shadow over life. For example, up to 1919, Derry had not had a Catholic mayor since the 1680s, despite the fact the majority of the population were Catholic. The Orange Order and the Apprentice Boys, who organised the parades and were supported by Unionist politicians, skillfully used these commemorations of this contentious war to stoke up sectarianism and build an ultra-conservative movement utterly opposed to any form of political independence in Ireland. By highlighting and amplifying the sectarian divisions that divided Irish society, they played on what were understandable concerns and anxieties that many Protestants had about political change in Ireland. There was no doubt that a more equal society would mean Catholics, who formed the majority of the population, would hold political power. Protestants were fearful if the tables were turned, it would be they who would suffer discrimination. And as is often the case when faced with an uncertain future, many Protestants chose to embrace the path that rejected change in all its forms, something that encouraged and benefited the ultra-conservative leadership of unionism in general. That these parades were designed to exacerbate and heighten fears within Protestant communities about what would result from social and political change had been evident since their earliest incarnations. The Orange Order, for example, had been founded in the 1790s as tensions rose in the build-up to the 1798 Rebellion, the first Republican uprising in Ireland, which had enjoyed considerable support among Protestants. By whipping up sectarianism, the Orange Order and the British authorities had successfully suppressed that rebellion and ever since the parades had served as a crude barometer of political tensions in Ireland, but specifically in the North. If they were large, it reflected rising tension, concern and anxiety among large sections of the Protestant community that change was on the cards. For example, the parades in 1886 and 1913 
were among the largest before the First World War. It was no accident that these happened to coincide with the first two attempts to introduce increased autonomy for Ireland through Home Rule, which the Unionist movement was utterly opposed to. It also explained why the parade in 1919, immediately after the First World War, was one of the largest ever. It was true that returning soldiers swelled the numbers of those marching, but this was also, as we've seen throughout the series, a time of huge change and uncertainty. No one knew what the future held in store. The Republican movement, with their demands for complete independence, were on the march, while in London the government was again talking about introducing Home Rule. This complex landscape naturally had a huge bearing on the unfolding war of independence. However, in the North, Unionists were not opposed just by Sinn Féin and the IRA. There were other forces at work. While the general election of December 1918 had demonstrated the power of the Republican movement across most of Ireland, it had also demonstrated just how weak it was in the North East in particular. Unionist candidates were utterly dominant, taking 23 of the 30 seats available in that general election. To a certain extent, this reflected a breakdown in the population. In the six northeastern counties of Antrim, Armagh, Down Tyrone, Derry and Fermanagh, Protestants formed the majority of the population, and organisations such as the Orange Order and the wider Unionist movement had huge influence across all groups in society, from the working class right up to the richest landowners. In these communities, sectarianism acted as a bulwark against the growth of Republican ideas. Contrary to simplistic narratives of the war, the Republican movement did not see itself as Catholic. It actually argued that Irish people, regardless of religion, should unite to forge an independent republic. Indeed, the movement's founding father had been Belfast Protestants back in the 1790s, but it is true to say that the vast majority of its members were Catholics by the 20th century. However, it's important to note it did not embrace the sectarian divide and many prominent members were from Protestant backgrounds including Ernest Blythe, Constance Markiewicz, Bulmer Hobson, Erskine Childers and Robert Barton. However, in Ulster, the Conservative Unionist movement dismissed Republicans as extreme radicals and Catholics, essentially everything that they opposed. While the Unionist movement was an effective barrier to Republicans gaining Protestant support in the North East, they also struggled in Catholic communities as well. In these areas, they were outflanked by the Home Rule movement, who, with the support of an organisation called the Ancient Order of Aburnians, were essentially a Catholic version of the Orange Order, who embraced sectarian politics and divisions in society as well. Indeed, while the Orange Order was limited to Protestants, the Ancient Order of Aburnians was limited to Catholics and Catholics alone. Similar to the big Orange Order parades in July, the Ancient Order of Aburnians organised a major march on the 15th of August, a date known as Lady Day, a Catholic feast day. And, just like the Orange Order, the Ancient Order of Aburnians were not shy in using violence against their political opponents. In many ways, the two organisations actually complemented each other. They were both sides of the same coin and reinforced the fears and suspicions their communities had about each other. John McCoy, the adjutant of the Newry Brigade of the IRA, lamented how the sectarian divisions fostered by the ancient order of Hibernians were deeply problematic. The ancient order of Hibernians was definitely sectarian and anti-Protestant in its policy. 
and it has no doubt played a most sinister part in all the northern counties. Sectarianism could have only bad results. It caused unionists who had liberal or nationalist tendencies to get suspicious or alarmed, and amongst the Orange Order it was a godsend, as it enabled the diehards to come out with their war cries of no surrender, no popery, and no home rule. Unfortunately, the ancient order of Hibernians became a Catholic edition of the Orange Order, and the Nationalist papers, when giving reports of ancient Order of Hibernians division meetings, detailed how many men were at each meeting, initiated prayers said for the Pope, and periodical announcements of church parades where the members were all advised to parade wearing their regalia. Thus the Orange Order were imitated in every respect by a Catholic organisation. In Macquarie's eyes, the ancient order of Hibernians and the Orange Order were very similar, even if they professed to hate each other. On the 12th of July each year, the Orange men held huge parades in selected places not necessarily in an orange district, wearing orange sashes carrying orange banners and accompanied by bands and drumming parties. On the 15th of August each year, the ancient order of Hibernians were turned out in large numbers in specially appointed places wearing green sashes. There was no difference in the conduct of either party. Each adopted exactly the same tactics. The cry, to hell with the Pope, from the Orange Men on the 12th of July was echoed by, to hell with King William, by the Hibernians on the 15th of August. Both parties seemed satisfied when their particular celebration was over if a few black-torn sticks were broken and a few heads required mending. In this polarised political landscape, the Republican movement's appeal for unity, regardless of religion, fell on stony soil. Joe Sweeney, an IRA volunteer from Donegal, remembered a conversation with Michael Collins when he articulated the difficulties Republicans faced in the North. He questioned me about the state of things in the North, and when I told him how short we were of weapons, he said, why the hell don't you get into the barracks up there and arm yourselves? So I said, that was easier said than done. We not only had the British to fight, but also the Unionists and the ancient order of Hibernians. While the Republican movement struggled to make inroads in this sectarian landscape, the other major force to drive the War of Independence in the South and West, the trade union movement, was also hampered by sectarianism. Belfast was unquestionably the most industrialised city in Ireland and unsurprisingly had a well-organised and militant trade union movement, but it couldn't escape the sectarian divisions that divided its membership. In early 1919, tens of thousands of workers from both Catholic and Protestant communities went on strike together, demanding a 44-hour work week. However, the sectarian attitudes many individual members harboured had far deeper roots than the trade union movement, which was only a few decades old. As we'll see later in the episode, within seven months, these same workers who had gone on strike together were hunting each other down in one of the most notorious aspects of the war in 1920 the events that would become known as the Belfast Pogrom. Having laid out what was a fraught and complex landscape, we can now turn to the outbreak of the War of Independence in the region, which was shaped by this bitter sectarianism. The War of Independence in the Northeast did not start at the same time or the same way as it did elsewhere. An IRA volunteer Daniel McGandy was killed by the British Army while moving explosives on the day before the Salahed Beg ambush, which is often regarded as the opening shots of the conflict. However, this was something of an isolated incident. 
Over the following months, the North remained largely peaceful. There were a handful of IRA attacks, most notably the Newry Brigade, who featured in the last episode, who had organised a major raid on Bally Edmund Castle in May of 1919. However, when compared with, say, Tipperary, a county that was increasingly ungovernable by the late summer of 1919, the North remained calm. IRA and wider Republican activity was limited. There was one major incident when serious rioting broke out in Derry in August of 1919. This had taken place to the backdrop of contentious Apprentice Boys parades which were closely followed by a major mobilisation of the ancient order of Hibernians. Now while the Apprentice Boys event had taken place without incident, the British Army banned the ancient order of Hibernians from marching along the city walls in Derry, a route taken by the Apprentice Boys. This naturally heightened sectarian divisions as Catholics were being treated differently. This led to increased tensions in the city as the march went ahead overlooked by soldiers who were occupying the walls. Later that night, Catholic nationalists and Protestant unionists clashed in Derry with shots being fired. Yet, even despite this, the rest of the year passed off without any major incidents and it appeared to some that the North was actually going to escape the conflict that was engulfing other parts of Ireland. This all changed with the new year of 1920. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, 
H-E-L-P dot com slash Irish history. Tensions began to grow steadily from the opening weeks of the year. In local elections that were held in Derry, nationalists and republicans won control of the governing body of the city, known as Derry City Corporation. When the newly elected representatives convened the first meeting of that corporation, one of their first tasks was to elect a new mayor. It was little surprise that the republicans and nationalists who formed the majority chose the Catholic nationalist Hugh O'Doherty as mayor. This was a landmark occasion. It was the first time a Catholic had been elected as mayor of Derry since 1688. While this was celebrated by Catholics in the city, conservative Protestants interpreted this as yet another sign of unwelcome change and a challenge to their dominance over life in the region. Sectarian organisations such as the Orange Order and the Apprentice Boys used O'Doherty's election to whip up fears and tensions in the city. Now this was all happening to the backdrop of an anxious climate in wider politics across the north at this time. The Government of Ireland Act, which would enact home rule in Ireland, was being finalised in these months. As covered in a previous episode, it had been agreed that Ireland would be partitioned between two parliaments, one in Dublin and one in Belfast. However, unionist communities in the northeast feared the consequences if all nine counties in Ulster were to be included in the jurisdiction of the Belfast Parliament. Were this to happen, they would only have a slim majority. They wanted and demanded that only the six counties where they formed a large majority of the population would be included in the Belfast Parliament's jurisdiction. Now, as covered in episode 9, ultimately the government restructured the details of the Government of Ireland Bill to fit unionist demands. However, this debate and process only served to ramp up tensions in early 1920. This also coincided with a surge in IRA operations during these months as well, and brigades across the north were becoming increasingly active. At Easter 1920, for example, numerous tax offices and RAC barracks were destroyed in the major IRA offensive that took place to mark the fourth anniversary of the 1916 Rising. The building tensions would first break into the open in Derry in the late spring and early summer, offering a foretaste of the brutal war to come. This began to the backdrop of the large-scale IRA hunger strikes which were underway in Mountjoy Jail in Dublin at the time. Given some of those prisoners were Derry natives, it was no surprise that solidarity demonstrations took place in the city. However, given the tensions, it was equally no surprise that these turned violent. Indeed, after the authorities in Dublin backed down and the IRA prisoners were released, the return of the Derry prisoners resulted in major rioting as crowds of nationalists clashed with the soldiers who were supported by unionists. This was dubbed by some as the worst rioting in half a century as over a dozen people were seriously injured. It was only the beginning as the opening months of 1920 had seen a rapid escalation in the situation across the north and with the traditional flashpoints that were the Orange Order, the Apprentice Boys and the Ancient Order of Hibernians Parades, all set to take place in the following months, the region braced itself for a long, hot summer. However, even before the first of these parades, that of the Orange Order on July the 12th took place, violence had swept across the north. This was significantly different from the violence elsewhere on the island and framed what would be the bloodiest chapter in the War of Independence. By the early summer of 1920, the city of Derry remained on a knife edge. The election of Hugh O'Doherty as mayor, 
the resulting unionist outrage, the growing IRA attacks and then the major rioting after the IRA prisoners returned home, all created an unbearable political atmosphere. Now it was in this context that the IRA in Derry received deeply alarming intelligence in June that the British Army were actually issuing weapons to unionists in the city. Given the prevailing situation in the city, this was a terrifying prospect. Liam Brady, an IRA volunteer in the city, remembered, On Thursday, June 18th, 1920, a Protestant gentleman sent word to a Republican officer that the Dorset Regiment were handing over rifles and ammunition to a certain section of the Unionists, as so to create trouble, and if possible a civil and religious war. The IRA would dismiss these rumours as unbelievable. However, two days after these guns were produced, beginning what was the worst cycle of violence in the conflict so far, Brady recalled how this incident started. About eight o'clock, a drunken squabble took place between two men at Bishopsgate. Naturally, this attracted a small crowd, but when the fight was over and most of the people had dispersed, a group of orange men, numbering about 20, armed with British service rifles, started firing down Fountain Street and Albert Street, into Bishop Street and Long Tower Street, which was a purely nationalist district. Other accounts of how the violence began vary slightly, but it appears after a seemingly innocuous incident, violence escalated and Unionist snipers took up positions and began targeting people in nationalist neighbourhoods. This triggered a tide of violence that swept through the city. IRA volunteers and members of the Ancient Order of Hibernians began to fight back, attempting to dislodge the Unionist snipers. While this was unfolding, large-scale violence between crowds of people from both communities broke out in the streets. One English newspaper captured what was frequently a chaotic conflict. Further scenes of terror were enacted this morning. A state of civil war existing in the main thoroughfares from 5 o'clock until the military were called out at 10 o'clock. Many people were injured and it is feared several were killed. But in the confusion existing, it is impossible to obtain accurate details. Prior to calling out the military, houses in the affected area were barricaded and a state of siege existed for hours, the thoroughfares being at the mercy of armed mobs, many of whom were masked. A great deal of indiscriminate shooting also took place in other districts. Between the 19th and the 20th of June, five people had been killed in Derry. The violence was out of control and continued for nearly a week and the casualties were appalling. On the night of Thursday the 24th, the police published official statistics that revealed the gravity of the situation. While listening to these, it's worth bearing in mind that these casualties were in Derry, a city of just 40,000 people. Saturday, killed five, wounded ten. Monday, killed two, wounded four. Tuesday, killed three, wounded one. Wednesday, killed three, wounded fourteen. Thursday, killed four, wounded Zero. Now, during the week, leading Dublin IRA volunteers, Dick McKee and Pather Clancy, had arrived in Derry and they aided other IRA volunteers in the city who successfully began to force back the Unionist snipers. Eventually, the violence did begin to subside when the British Army adopted a more aggressive approach. However, the IRA would claim that this only happened as they started to get the upper hand. Overall, these developments in Derry were deeply alarming. There had been nothing like this in the conflict so far, where two communities attacked each other over a prolonged period. In total, 20 people, 15 Catholics and 5 Protestants had been killed, the youngest victim, an orphan, aged 5. 
This type of violence, rooted in deep sectarian tensions, would become a defining feature of the conflict in the North, where the War of Independence was more akin to a civil war. This was clear when the annual Orange Order parades took place in July. These were expected to be enormous given the rising tensions and they certainly lived up to expectations. On July 12th, 1920, an estimated 25 to 30,000 people participated in the Orange Order Parade in Belfast. The crowds wound their way through the streets of the city before making their way to Fanahi, a few miles outside Belfast, where platforms had been erected for speeches. The North was teetering on the edge of large-scale sectarian violence, and events in Derry had illustrated how easily it could begin and then spiral far beyond the control of any individual or group. Measured words and appeals for calm were needed. However, when Edward Carson, the leader of Irish Unionism, who was considered to be one of the great orators of the age, mounted the platform, he did everything in his power to rile up those before him. Carson effectively poured petrol over the embers that had been burning since the violence in Derry. In his speech, he told the assembled crowds, We must proclaim today clearly that come what will, and be the consequences what they may, we in Ulster will tolerate no Sinn Féin, no Sinn Féin organisation, no Sinn Féin methods, and these are not mere words. I hate words without action. Sinn Féin by this point was a catch-all term for nationalists of all stripes, indeed in some eyes, all Catholics, and those present on the march heard Carson's words loud and clear. It would only take a few days before the region plunged into terrifying violence. The Orange Order Parade was followed by traditional holidays in the northeast when major employers closed for the following 10 days. During that week, the political temperature in the region continued to rise. On July the 17th, only a few days after Edward Carson's inflammatory speech at Fanahi, the Cork No. 1 Brigade shot the Divisional Commissioner of the Royal Irish Constabulary in Munster, a Colonel Gerard Smith. In normal circumstances, the shooting of an individual policeman 300 kilometres away in Cork would not have had major consequences in the north. However, Smith happened to be a native of Bambridge, a town 12 miles south of Belfast. When his funeral took place, it was used as an excuse for appalling sectarian violence in Bambridge and the surrounding area. He was buried on the 21st of July, the first day workers returned to work after the holidays. After Smith was laid to rest, mobs of Protestant workers poured into the streets and began what would be days of sectarian rioting and violence. A contemporary reported, A crowd of Protestant employees from the local factories marched through the streets, singing and carrying Union Jacks, and proceeded to the post office. Some of the leaders entered and demanded that one of the clerks who had joined in the one-day strike of protest for the hunger strikers in Mountjoy Prison should be dismissed. They interrogated him and, it is alleged, made him undertake not to return to his employment. They then accompanied him to his lodgings where they left him after demanding that he should leave the town promptly. These crowds also went to the house of Daniel Monaghan, a local Sinn Féin activist who had stood in recent local elections. However, Monaghan opened fire on the crowd, injuring a young girl and killing a 17-year-old teenager, William Sterrett. When the army arrived on the scene, Monaghan opened fire again, but eventually soldiers broke into the house, arrested him and probably saved his life. 
When they brought him to Newry RIC barracks, his house was wrecked by the mob. Events escalated from there and soon mobs were targeting Catholic businesses and homes and towns in the surrounding locality. These people were obviously completely innocent, having no connection to what had happened in Cork. Serious as these events were, it was immediately overshadowed by what was unfolding in Belfast on the same day. As unionist workers returned to the city's major employers, Edward Carson's words were still fresh in their ears. Some were determined to act as Carson had encouraged them to, and meetings were convened by unionists in the shipyards in the city to discuss the issue. In what was an ugly atmosphere, it was resolved that what were called disloyal employees would be driven from their jobs. The words disloyal was shorthand for Catholics and what were dubbed rotten prods, anti-sectarian Protestant socialists and trade unionists. Gangs flooded into the shipyards in the city, roaming around looking for the so-called disloyal workers. The Freeman's Journal reported details the following day. When work resumed yesterday, a meeting was held in Workman and Clark's yard and the sequel was the rushing of the Harland and Wolf's yard by a crowd estimated to number 1,000. They were armed with sticks, stones and bolts. Catholics and nationalists were savagely attacked and beaten. Some, when unconscious, were thrown into the water where they were pelted with whatever missiles came to hand. The attacks were not just limited to the shipyards but spread to other major employers including the Sirocco Engineering Works along with the famous linen works in the city. In total somewhere between seven and 10,000 people were driven from employment. While the shipyards fell silent as work drew to a close the mobs who had driven their fellow workers from their jobs were now intent on continuing the attacks as this report indicates. At six o'clock, the shipyard workers assembled on the Newtonards Road where Catholic houses were wrecked and looted. A rumour spread that St Mark's Catholic Church in Ballymacarrot was being attacked. A Catholic crowd rushed to the scene to defend it. A collision with an orange gathering ensued and a fierce riot took place. Across Belfast, Catholics who lived in what were considered Protestant neighbourhoods were ordered to leave under threat that they would be burned out and looted if they didn't. Catholic businesses were also destroyed. The frenzy of violence did not stop for four days over which 20 people were killed. When it finally eased, this was not an end, but rather just the beginning. As we'll see in coming shows, it triggered two years of conflict as the city of Belfast became the most violent place in Ireland during the War of Independence. While it was fuelled by naked sectarianism, there were also those outside of Belfast and indeed the north of Ireland who were responsible. British politicians in Dublin and London had long viewed unionists as a useful tool to maintain power in Ireland and had never challenged their deadly sectarianism. Indeed, they'd promoted it and given them access to power. For example, Lord John French was heavily influenced by his secretary, James Saunderson, who had strong family links to the Orange Order. Meanwhile, in London, as we saw in the previous episodes, the highly influential Walter Long, the First Lord of the Admiralty, was himself an ardent Unionist, while his number two was none other than James Craig, a leading Ulster Unionist and Orange Man. This continued right up to Andrew Bonner Law. As the leader of the Conservative Party and the second most influential government politician after the Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, he had encouraged Unionists to go to war to resist Home Rule in 1913 when he had said, I can imagine no length of resistance to which Ulster will go, in which I shall not be ready to support them. 
While the most powerful politicians in the United Kingdom were clearly partly to blame at least, wider social and economic changes that were afoot also added to the growing fear and tension in Protestant communities. The world economy had briefly boomed at the end of the First World War, but this growth was clearly at an end by 1920. And as employment was becoming increasingly scarce, workers became fearful about their jobs. By driving disloyal workers from the shipyards and other major employers, this eased the stresses for Protestant workers, and this was certainly a secondary factor at play. Finally, employers in Belfast were not blameless either. After huge numbers of workers were driven from their jobs, the amalgamated society of carpenters and joiners, a trade union, approached the shipyard owners to reinstate their members. The companies refused, citing safety concerns. However, other factors influenced this decision. The likes of Harland and Wolfe, Workman and Clark, along with Sirocco, unquestionably benefited as radical trade union leaders had been among those forced out. The trade union, the Amalgamated Society of Carpenters and Joiners, tried to organise a strike, but unsurprisingly, given the rampant sectarianism in Belfast that summer, this failed due to a lack of support. The fallout was immense. This was only the beginning of waves of sectarian violence that would last in the city until 1922 and indeed beyond. Meanwhile, the Republican leadership in Dublin reacted in a pretty ham-fisted and ultimately counterproductive fashion. In August, the Doyle, the Republican Parliament, announced what was called the Belfast Boycott, which called on supporters to boycott goods from Belfast or refuse to use Belfast banks. This would gain widespread support across the south and west of Ireland and was enforced in some areas by the IRA. While it was a questionable strategy to begin with, it was a very blunt instrument that was poorly targeted. For example, the prominent Belfast Republican, Dennis McCullough, was badly affected and had to close his business due to the boycott. Now, while we will return to the north later in the series... In the next two episodes, we need to travel to the other end of the island and look at a very different war that was unfolding 300 kilometres away in Cork. This will introduce some of the most famous people in the War of Independence, such as Terence McSweeney, Thomas McCurtain and Tom Barry. Until then, Sloan. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 